0: Hello and welcome to Series 3 of the Leading Through Uncertainty podcast. I'm Jude Jennison, founder of Leaders by Nature and host of this podcast and I'm the author of the book Leading Through Uncertainty. In this series, I ask leaders to share their stories of uncertainty, the challenges they've faced and overcome and what we can learn from their experiences. Bill Coletti specialises in reputation management and crisis communication. He's author of the book Critical Moments – the mindset of reputation management. In this podcast, he shares his experience of staying grounded under pressure in a crisis and being confident of the way forward in moments of extreme uncertainty that a personal or professional crisis brings. There is so much to learn from Bill about how we create clarity and certainty in moments of extreme uncertainty. Hi Bill, thanks for joining me today.
1: Jude, thank you very much. It's my honor. I look forward to a great conversation.
0: Yeah, me too. So for the benefit of the listeners, can you explain who you are and what you do?
1: Uh, Sure. My name is Bill Coletti, and I'm the CEO and founder of Kith, and we are a crisis communications and reputation management firm based in Austin, Texas, primarily with clients here in the United States. Uh, We work with companies when they are having their worst day or trying to prepare for what may, may be their worst day to try to help them get ready with crisis response, crisis training, and crisis planning. And then we also have a growing practice of actual reputation management where either pre or post crisis, how do clients prepare um, for the and sort of grow their reputation.
0: So, well, that must be really fascinating. Cause I guess y- you never know, I mean, the, the stuff that you're planning, I guess you can, you can plan and prepare for, but when a crisis comes unannounced as, many of them, I guess, do, I guess there's never a dull moment for you.
1: Yeah. You know, the, the crisis response, so re- response planning and training are the three things fundamentally that we do response is the biggest piece of what we do. And it is a very big mixed bag, uh, mm. you know, from leading my firm and in the, in the context of your work, you know, there's a great deal of uncertainty because it's really hard to business plan around mm. other people's crises. Yeah. Uh, so uh, it's very much word of mouth. It's very much referral. Um, but yeah, those are, it, is, it is wide and varied from um, any number of different industries. We've got a few that we specialize in, but any given day, it could be any given topic. And so it requires us to be really, really experts at what we do and quick studies to learn what our clients do.
0: Mm. And I'm guessing you must be really calm under pressure then as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's a, um, I think that's a common trait for people that do what I do. And there's a there's a great new movie out. It's a National Geographic movie on Netflix called Free Solo, and it's about the the guy that recently climbed El Capitan, which is El Cap, mm. which is a mountain um, in Yosemite, California. Yeah. And he did an MRI study, obviously a guy who was really calm in crisis situations or really nerve wracking situations. And they did an MRI of his brain and it looked at his amygdala, um, which is the center of the, the core of his brain. And he had no stimuli, um, relative to the norm that was there. I don't, certainly don't know if I'm like that. My heart races when I work with clients. And, and the thing that makes me unique is that I, I sincerely care about my clients. They are, they are typically going through the worst days of their career as leaders, as individuals, but also as the representatives of a company. Um, so yeah, I think trying to stay calm, it's certainly a trait that people have noticed uh, about me. I also sail. So that's really helpful in the sailing um, as well to, to keep that calm calmness but you get calmness through preparation and planning it doesn't Mm -hmm. i don't don't believe it just sort of shows up
0: Mm -hmm. so um you must have tons of fascinating stories and and obviously some of them will be very commercially sensitive as well but have you got an interesting story that you can share with us that that demonstrates some of the uncertainty of of the crisis response
1: Sure. So I'll take an industrial accident. It was, a, it was a mine disaster in West Virginia where 29 very brave men died underground. Um, and it was a tragedy. There's no doubt that it was a tragedy that these men died. We were called in by the board of directors about seven days after the actual incident itself. So the, the disaster had happened. These men had perished and we were President Obama had come and sort of the funerals had finished in that sort of initial seven day phase. And we were involved in sort of the deep mud of managing this, helping this company manage through a situation. Significant uncertainty related to the causation. You know, why did this event happen? Mm -hmm. Uh, The government was beginning an investigation and was looking at the root cause. The client had a very, very clear hypothesis. The CEO had a very, very clear hypothesis of what happened. And it was 180 degrees separate from what the... um, Uh, from what the government believed at that time. And so it was a situation where I knew what was right, I knew what we needed to do. Mm -hmm. We had a CEO that had a very, very combative nature and wanted to be very, very combative in this tragic moment. And it was a real learning for me of where I learned an important skill of Just simply be true to my truth and be true to what I know and and my job is to give the best advice that I can Based on the experience that I have mm. and clients can either take it or leave it And so the the challenge that we had there is that this CEO had this competing narrative at his different set of beliefs that just over time Became implausible. We just simply it, it just was un, became untrue. At the outset, it was plausible. It could have happened yeah. that way, but as 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 the investigation unfolded, both our own internal investigation and the external investigation, um, it became impossible. And so, you know, the the really important learning for me was that you know, my job is to give best advice. Um, My job is not to simply salute the flag of the client and and say, this is okay. We're just going to follow your lead, do what is actually what we believe best. And and we ultimately got fired because the CEO could only put up with so much truth. Um, And so we had to move on. And so that was a real challenge, a real challenge for me as a, as a, as a, you know, as a business person, you want to keep your clients, you don't want to lose your clients. So that was, that's an interesting example
0: yeah and it's a, i think it's a great example because you know what i'm hearing about the you know combative approach is is quite common in in my experience in uncertainty because by its very nature in uncertainty there, there isn't a there isn't a finite route of which way we go and where we end up because by its very nature there is no perfect answer um and what that does is it creates huge amounts of stress and in in that you get those stress behaviors Um, so I'm hearing, you know, that it's, I guessing that's the challenge that you have of, even though you might be calm and grounded under pressure, you must be dealing with other people who are, um, much more personally affected and much more, um, probably more stressed and more impacted. How, how do you, how do you handhold your clients through that?
1: Yeah, it's it's a, it's a beautiful question. Um, I, in my own personal faith journey, my spiritual journey, um, there's a very much of a ministerial role that I play with my clients of that. This will be okay. We will get through this. You know, corporations are a little bit more resilient and they're a little bit more thick skinned. But if you're dealing with individuals, individuals that are going through personal crises, you know, that's different. That's families, that's husbands and wives and, and kids, uh, and that's, that's real different corporations, um, little little bit more resilient. And I think for me, it's one of just really being confident based on pattern recognition. And the, the, the single best thing that I bring to clients is an understanding of pattern recognition. I've been here. I've done this. I've seen the pattern of if you make a left and a right and a left, it's pretty certain the next thing to happen is a right. And so I've seen that and I know that, and that is very reassuring to clients that I can tell them the pattern that this situation is going to roll out. And if I can be predictive, it makes a stressed situation and a stressed person, uh, ease a little bit into that situation. If I can predict and tell them what's going to happen next and it turns out to be right, that's very, um, that's pleasing and, and it also deescalates people's um, cortisol and all the sort of the brain mm-hmm. chemicals that they have. Mm. But if I can be predictive, that's really most helpful.
0: So I'm really fascinated by that because, um, you know, there's a tendency to think that in uncertainty, everything's just chaotic and and unknown. And, um, and you know, I've, I've written the book Leading Through Uncertainty and as part of the research that i did i interviewed a wide variety of ceos and and in fact the the first chapter in the in the last section of the book which is looking at what are the skills that we need to lead through uncertainty Mm -hmm. one one of the skills that was common across all of the ceos was they all talked about creating certainty in the midst of great uncertainty and how there's a tendency to think that in the midst of uncertainty everything is unknown and and yet Actually, lots of things are still known, and so what i'm hearing you do is a similar flavor of that in terms of but i'm I'm interested in the the language that you use around pattern repetition. is that what you said
1: recognition recognizing recognition. the patterns yeah
0: so pattern pattern recognition i'm interested can you say a bit more about how you find pattern recognition because that's slightly different from what's certain isn't it but it's but it's similar
1: but it's similar yeah it's similar so You know, those CEOs you spoke to and and that you've written about are incredibly wise. And, And when in an uncertain situation, particularly in a crisis situation, the best way to create certainty is to stop what you're doing. Okay, just simply stop. If we are bleeding and we are doing something that is being negatively viewed by the media or the public or regulators, we simply must stop it. If I've got a whole model where I talk about different types of risks that impact corporations, um, but if it's something that is simply we made a mistake, we screwed up, we have to stop it, we have to apologize for it, and we have to fix it. Mm -hmm. Those three things, stopping, apologizing, and fixing, create a very clear roadmap for certainty. So the first thing you need to do is stop. Related to pattern recognition, What I get to do is there is a relatively well-worn trajectory of crises. Um, Now, certainly there are are, uh, random data points that come in that you're not aware of at any given time. But there is a relatively, you know, if you shoot a rocket ship up, it's a parabolic curve. It goes up, it crests, and it comes down. Mm -hmm. The wind may impact it or gravity may change it but those are all really relatively fixed known things that impact the trajectory. Same thing in a crisis, crises go up, they apex, they drop. Um, And so if I can be predictive, help them stop, fix what they're apologizing and then fix. And then if we can really help them understand, here's where this is going to go, that then creates that certainty. And that comes from pattern recognition. What all pattern recognition is, is that it's, it's the same thing that happens to you when you drive. The first Mm -hmm. time you drove versus the way you drive today, you were nervous and didn't know the patterns of what happened the first time you drove as a teenager. Now, as an adult, those patterns are normal. They've been ingrained into your brain, and you don't really even think twice about it. You automatically put the key in, you grab the wheel, you put your seatbelt on, and you take off, okay? You sat the first time you drove, you went through a checklist of each one of those things. Mm -hmm. That's pattern recognition. Right. And so- have that ability because I've been through these situations with clients to say, now's the time to put on the seatbelt, put the car and drive, push the, let off the brake, accelerate. They've never done that before Mm -hmm. much the way we teach a teenager. So that's, so those two things, stop what you're doing, create certainty. Once you've created certainty, it's my role in these uncertain moments to illuminate with pattern recognition that if it's, like I said before, you know, a square, a circle, a triangle, and the next thing you see is a square. I'm pretty sure it's going to be a circle that comes up next. And there are patterns. And we, have to, and we just have to understand and see those patterns. You can't see those patterns unless you stop. So that's why it stops. It begins with stopping.
0: And it's interesting that because so, so what I'm hearing is you're the, you're the driving instructor of the crisis world, aren't you? <laughs> <laughs>
1: I've never used that metaphor before. And it's interesting to me. Um, but it's, it is. And sometimes you have to reach over and grab the wheel. Mm-hmm. as a driving instructor sometimes you grab the wheel sometimes you put your foot on the brake some cars are actually set up where you've got you know two two separate wheels and two separate foot controls yes. uh, yeah sometimes you need to reach over and grab the wheel and just say stop we're not doing that or turn left or turn right but yeah i've never thought about it that way but it's an interesting context
0: yeah and i i'm i'm um, i'm really intrigued to know how easy it is to to get people to stop when they're in that middle of crisis because you know, you mentioned the amygdala earlier, you know, the amygdala is the part of the brain that, that hijacks our rational brain and shuts the rational brain off and sends us into fight, flight, or freeze. And, Mm -hmm. and I'm, and I'm guessing you're not talking about stopping in terms of freezing. You're talking about stopping in, in terms of thinking rationally. So how, Mm -hmm. how easy is it to get people to do that when when they're in the middle of major crisis?
1: Yeah. It, is easier with that pattern recognition. It mm-hmm. is easier with me coming in with experience and industry understanding. If I don't have industry under, I, I always have the pattern recognition, but if I don't have the industry understanding, it's a little bit harder. Um, it also has a lot to do with my personal affect and, and the way I present myself um, in, in situations and the way I show up. As a leader in that moment, mm-hmm. uh, I'm, a, I'm a subset of the leadership team in those situations. So I so I think for me, it's certainly difficult, um, but it's to, to come up with these sort of cute ways of thinking about it, it's very much like I'm a life ring. And so if you're drowning in a swimming pool or a lake or what have you, and someone throws you a ring, you're not particularly choosy about what color it is or the condition that it's in or that it's been inspected last week. You just want the life ring to float.
0: You grab and onto it.
1: Whatever it is. And even if it's just a, someone sent you a milk jug, um, you know, you you want something to hold on to. And so I try to be um, thoughtful and empathetic and understand, but we have to make decisions. Um, mm. And there's a big difference that I've found between um, corporate communicators that this is the first time they've had to deal with this versus CEOs that have had to deal with this. Um, and, and it's not universal that CEOs are better and communicators are worse. I've seen some brilliant communicators that have risen to the occasion, but I've also seen some CEOs shrink from this in a way that is um, baffling because um, you would think someone with that job, a woman with that leadership role of being a CEO, and they just simply shrink from it. But I've also seen, you know, seen le- great leaders that have risen to that occasion mm. as well. And, mm. and it's not gender specific at all. It's, it's mm. really to um, a last concept that I'm curious your reaction to, is I believe that the crucible of crisis doesn't develop your leadership skills, it reveals it. And so I think that in a crisis, in uncertainty, um, is that what you believe and know and have experienced previously is revealed. I don't believe there's a whole lot of on-the-job training
0: Mm -hmm. um,
1: in uh, and so I don't think you do you develop and grow into it. I think it gets revealed over time.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think so. I think I think there's a the tendency to revert to to kind of core behaviors in, in a crisis. But I'm wondering if there's um you know, an, uh, an ability to to develop the skill of and, and you've clearly developed it, the skill of being able to lead through uncertainty without getting into a complete flap. Um, and And to be calm under pressure, because you know in in that situ, in that instant situation, there is that natural physiological urge to to either freeze or to to run away or to fight it and and it's how how do you train people to you've de- obviously developed the skill and it comes naturally to you as it as it does to me in in the work that I do, but how do you train people to um to stay calm under pressure i mean obviously this you you talked about stopping apologizing and and then fixing it but how do you get people to really come down from that headless chicken mode
1: mm-hmm. so i am a firm believer in in simulations and doing crisis simulations that is the single best tool for people to feel the bitter taste that they get in their mouth in that moment of intensity. And so you can do, there's two types of simulations that we do. There's one that's just a, a tabletop exercise where we sit and we move kind of logically, not really constrained by time. And we just sort of bounce ideas back and forth about what if, what if, what if. And then there's a real-time simulation. So we've created and worked with some software partners. We've created a walled garden that simulates Facebook, simulates Twitter, simulates internal email, and, and uses news media, reporters calling and what have you, to actually simulate a crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, and those simulations, that when we put clients through those, are remarkably real. And they mm-hmm. are remarkably... Um, uh I, I don't like to just do them to set people's hair on fire just to for the you know for the curiosity of it mm-hmm. i try to do them realistically and not all, not all crises are, are the same so i think that there is training that can be done and that's when i say your skill sets are are your your skill sets are revealed you want to have done some training and done mm-hmm. some planning and so i've mm-hmm. there's, there's three levels The first I recommend clients is simply read your favorite business newspaper that covers these types of issues and just ask yourself, if that had happened to me, how would we deal with it? That's a simple, simple way to get ready, cheap and free. And you don't have to pay a consultant. Just sit over your breakfast, coffee and say, if this was me, how would we handle it? Or if this was us, how would we handle it? The second are these tabletop exercises that are a little bit more formal where you get multi from an organization and we all sit together and we reflect on a moment unconstrained by time. And then the last one is this more real time, kind of four hours in the moment um, where we make it as real as possible, but realistic. You can mm-hmm. you can easily make these goofy, um, but you want to make them very, very realistic. Mm. And, and all three have great value. And all three of the people that practice them um, that we work with are better when the real time comes than those that have not done that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it is, you know, what I'm hearing is sim- similar in a similar way to with my work. You know, I, I work with leaders around uncertainty. So I'm getting them out of their comfort zones, looking at, well, how do I lead and what are my default patterns of behavior and which ones are useful and which ones aren't mm-hmm, when I'm mm-hmm. completely out of my comfort zone in an environment that I don't know and and what I'm hearing is, you know, your, yours is similar but specific to to crisis management. Really looking at practicing the skill of what happens when you're in a situation that's completely uncertain and a crisis and has um, a risk for your reputation as well, and how how do you bring your best behaviors and your best leadership in those moments when it's so easy not not to bring it?
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely, and 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 you know, and I'm sure you do this in your practice, and and even if it's as simple as visualization, just simple visualize yourself in a stressful situation. What are you feeling? What are you what are your emotions? How are you reacting? You know, we don't have to. It would be foolish in your practice or my practice to go really break something, to go really do something. That's, that's foolish, mm. but we can, we can simulate it and that then stimulates the things that we're looking for. And then the, the best part of any one of those three things where you read your coffee or a tabletop or a simulation is the debrief, where afterwards we sit and we reflect. And, and one of the best questions that I talk about is this notion of there's a mindset and then your mindset drives a behavior is is to really talk about that with clients and particularly if it's young younger leaders um is is this is the first time they've been exposed to it and so there's real value in the debrief and i think yeah. that's where the most important thing comes from um and also i mean i would assume that you agree with this as well self-teaching is better than any other kind and doing it experiencing it is the best way to learn something yeah. Yeah. And, and and we can coach and walk people through that holding their hand. But the really the best way for people to experience it is to experience it.
0: Yeah. And then, as you say, the, the debrief is a crucial part of that because it's the chance to reflect on what worked, what didn't, what do I do differently? Yeah.
1: It's a pity more people don't do that. Debriefs and reflection is is grossly underappreciated
0: it is and i think it's one of the challenges isn't it of living in a fast-paced world where we're going at the speed trying to go at the speed of light and there isn't actually the space to just takes a moment and doesn't actually need hours on end to just sit no. and reflect it can be you know five minutes you know here and there throughout the day that we can learn so much if we take the time to do it yeah um, yep. bill tell me what's been your bi- what's your biggest challenge when you when you do this work What's my biggest challenge?
1: Um, I mean I, I, the greatest challenge I have is very candidly is is just subject matter expertise. If I, if I walk into a um, chemical manufacturing facility, I don't really know I've learned it because I've had to do it here in the past couple of years. I'll learn it very quickly, but i don't I don't know what a mother liquor is, and a mother liquor is a very unique term of art in the chemical manufacturing process. And had to learn that. And right. so it's subject matter expertise at the outset. And so I, I try to be fast. I try to learn fast. But I think the, the greatest challenge I have is that. The other great challenge, as I've grown older and more mature, is um, knowing my limitations um, and not trying to be all things to all people. But that, that great challenge that I mentioned earlier of my job is to share my best counsel based on my experience and presented in a logical rational way
0: mm-hmm. and my
1: g- great challenge is being okay with that yeah if i don't some of these things i might not fix and mm-hmm. and people are going to get sued and and people are going to lose their job and and letting go of some of that uh, mm-hmm. is a great challenge so one subject matter expertise you can kind of read it really fast and get better. The other one is a little bit more deeper interpersonal to me of um, that. I can't onboard everybody's challenge. Mm. I can only do what I can do, which is my best advice based on right. my experience delivered in a clear, logical way.
0: Yeah. I mean, you can have a, a strong intention, but but I'm hearing a letting go of being detached to a specific outcome because we can't, we can't dictate the outcome. We can only do what we can do to influence it.
1: Absolutely. And and that's critical for what I do. And, and I, you know, it's, it's, you mentioned earlier, kind of how do I help? And I'm in these sort of critical, critical situations is that it takes two to tango. Mm. Um, and, and, and I can't be the spokesperson decision maker and execution leader I need partners and those mm. partners have to come along on this journey and understand uh, the, the role that they play. And that's, that's, that's hard sometimes. And that's what, mature.
0: What, yeah. What do you think is the biggest challenge for organizations when they're, um, you know, thrown into a crisis situation?
1: Yeah. Denial. We didn't do that. We don't, we, that wasn't us. That's, you know, if, if you just only understood what was going on, you'd realize it wasn't as bad as you think it is. Um, And so there's some derivative of denial. The second big challenge that organizations have is just getting way, way too concerned about litigation threat and, and that litigation threat being paralyzing and that the fear of litigation. But once you establish, certainly here in the United States, is that once you realize that we are going to get sued. That is that is a reality of the situation. We are going to get sued. How do we mitigate and minimize that impact? But let's not let it paralyze us. So I think the first one is denial, you know, some derivative of you know you don't understand and let me explain. And then the second is paralysis around uh, litigation. And then third is what we just talked about is not taking the time to reflect, not mm-hmm. taking the time simply, you know, to read the Financial Times. And say, hmm, what if that had happened to us over your coffee? Not not complicated, and then maybe bring it to your team at lunch and say, "Hey guys, if this had happened to us, how would we react?" Mm. That's the third thing that people don't take time to do, and we talked about it a moment ago about reflection and yeah. and, and the underappreciation of reflective thinking.
0: I'm I mean I'm, i run a, a small business, so um, so I'm not I'm not a, a big corporate brand to uh, to manage a reputation but nevertheless i still have a reputation as a small business but that's you know that's the the hint and tip i'm taking away from you is is to uh, to read the, the press and just keep saying how would i handle that because even as a small business it's crucial isn't it but um just going back to the denial i'm curious about the denial mm-hmm. what's behind that do you think is it fear or is it something else or is it is it ego um, is it
1: uh, yes, <laughs> yeah, all of the above, <laughs> um, you know, it is, um, uh, and there's embarrassment, uh, that that I would also throw into that equation. You know, I think, um, most of it is in being gen in being generous, which is, and, and that's fine to be generous, is that it is a frustration that We live in a seven-second world, and people won't take the time to understand the complexity of a given situation. The public won't take the time to understand the complexity of a situation. And so when the public sees the boom, sees the crisis, they form snap judgments And there is a deep, deep frustration with clients that, oh my gosh, they don't understand. And then that sort of begins on this path of denial of there's nothing we can do about it. And it's really not as bad as you think it is. So I think it is a being generous. It is a frustration that we live in a seven second world. Mm -hmm. People formed opinion. You formed an opinion about me. I formed an opinion about you very quickly. Mm -hmm. And so we can try to modify that over time, uh, but I think that's the great, great frustration is most clients are like, ah, oh, we've been doing this for 50 years or hundred years or 10 years, whatever. And, um, people get seven seconds exposure to us and they make a snap judgment and they get frustrated. And then that starts the cascade of denial.
0: Right. Okay. So tell me, tell me more. You mentioned earlier about reputation management. Uh, tell mm-hmm. me more about, um, what you do then and, and why that's important. Mm-hmm.
1: So, you know, as we've talked about, the bulk of my career has been first in politics and campaigns, which is basically careening from crisis to crisis. And you're trying to have one less crisis than your opponent. Um, <laughs> and that's that's kind of how you win. Uh, <laughs> it, it, I then, <laughs> and then having corporate, then to a corporate context of crisis, is that we had just finished a um, client engagement, uh, a, a lingering crisis issue. And I was sitting with the CEO. And I, the first thing he said was, well, let's never do that again. That sucked. And I said, okay, let's, let's agree not to ever do that again. Um, but then the conversation morphed into, okay, what, what do we do now? There's been damage that's been done. How do we manage our reputation? How do we create a um, system, a model, um, a, a way of working that will allow you to manage your reputation? And he says, tell me more. And so I explain it. And my thinking had not really been, was, was very sophisticated and it was, he was full of jargon and he wasn't really clear on what I was talking about. Mm -hmm. And he said to me, he said, so you mean like the four P's of marketing. And so if you're familiar with the four P's of marketing, it's price, product, place, promotion. And it's a concept from the 1960s and most undergrads that have taken a marketing class have learned about the four P's of marketing and it's price, product, place, promotion. And I said, well, no, not exactly, because those are different things. Reputation is measured in a different way. But what struck me is that if you take each one of those P's and you look at a marketing organization, there is a vice president of product, a vice president of, where, of retail or where, the, where it's placed, a vice president of promotion, is that, that each one of those P's is a well-defined discipline within an organization that you can put budget to, that you can assign someone the responsibility and authority to, to bring it to life. Any one of those Ps. So what I took away from that conversation with that CEO is this context is that reputation management needs the same sort of model, needs the same sort of management structure. And I'm, I'm sure you've seen this in your career, just about every facet of, of international corporations have systems Mm. whether it be onboarding at HR or um, the legal team or the operational team, the manufacturing team, there is a system that is in place. I created a system, a model or a mindset. um, How do you actually manage reputation? And it's the four A's. And it's, it's awareness of who you are, what your company can really pull off assessment where you go ask stakeholders what exactly they expect authority where you actually get the budget and the permission. There's then a hard line that separates from the fourth A, and the hard line is to protect you from jumping too quickly to the last A, which is action. So, and it's very much a personal development journey as well as a reputation management journey, is you have to assess your personal situation. Can I really do this? Mm -hmm. Uh, Or you have to to sort sort of ask yourself if you can really do this. You then need to say, what's the best tool? What's the best way to do it? give yourself permission to do it and then make action, uh, that's there. So those are the four A's. So a little bit of a long-winded story, but it came post crisis that, and it was born out of the model of the four P's to create the four A's of reputation management. And that's the book that I wrote called critical moments. Um, and it talks about these four A's.
0: And so, um, I so, so the book that you've written, um, is that, is that a personal development book or is Not that so
1: very much about corporate? It is it, very, a, very
0: it, much about cause, because there's a real parallel there, though, isn't wonderful there? Parallel, so the, wonderful, you wonderful know, managing your own personal brand and your own personal reputation, and, and how you build your own credibility as a leader in an organization is, yeah. you know, that the, the four A's that you talked about were you know, felt very resonant for me in terms of yeah. managing your own career through, through an organization as well. Yeah, as- and,
1: and I tried to paint that visual picture is that there are these four A's stacked in a pyramid and, and the, top, the top of the pyramid is action. And there's this solid blue line in the model that I have, which is a barrier because you have to go through this awareness assessment and authority process before you actually take action. I lived in Bulgaria for a while and was friends with the US Marines that guard the embassy they're sort of living as an expatriate you you spend time with those folks and I was training for a marathon that I was going to do in Bulgaria and one of the Marines like Tuesday before the Saturday marathon said well hell I can do that I'm going to do that so he totally bypassed personal awareness he did no assessment he didn't really give himself the authority to train, busted through the blue line and just immediately did action. And while he was certainly a fit guy, a marathon's a daunting yeah. challenge. And so it's, it's, to me, as I think about busting through the blue line and immediately jumping to action without doing any of that personal development or corporate development journey, um, he sort of represents that. And, and needless to say, um, as fit as he was and as tenacious as he was, um, he did not finish the marathon.
0: Interesting, and I think you know that's such a great story. Thank you for sharing that because that there's such a parallel there for you know an individual to think mm-hmm. about. Well, you know, what are my capabilities? Do I have that awareness? And mm-hmm. you know, all the, all of those those forays that you mentioned, but also for organisations to to think in that way as well.
1: Yep, so, absolutely.
0: Yeah. I love, I love that. Thank you for that. Um, final question for you, Bill, mm-hmm. what keeps you awake at night?
1: Oh my gosh. Um, I have a new college graduate. Uh, my daughter recently graduated from college. Um, and so I am very, very mindful of the journey that she's on and have I done everything to help her get ready? Have I done everything to help her simulate, um, the crises that she's going to have to impact. And mm. so she is very, very much on my mind and I worry about her. Um, I sail um, and I love sailing and I do journey. I do sailing uh, somewhat long distance. And so when I'm getting ready for something like that, it keeps me up at night about the safety and the readiness and the preparedness and things that I do. But but the biggest concern that I have, so I have two daughters, two kids. Um, they are generally the source of my um, concern. They're both great, great girls, but uh, that's that. That keeps. I think most dads would probably answer something similar.
0: Uh, yeah, I'm sure. And and there's um, huge uncertainty about their future, and you have virtually no control over it whatsoever.
1: Cross, cross your fingers and say a prayer. <laughs> I had 19 years to to figure this out. and I'm not going to fix it in the 19th.
0: <laughs> well, the good news is that you're uh, you're the person that can help them in a crisis, and uh, and you're the person that understands the importance of letting go. So. Uh... It sounds like you're well-equipped.
1: I think there's an, there's an adage uh, that, that doctors make the worst patients. So if my daughters ever got, found themselves in that situation, I would very, very quickly uh, excuse myself. Who I would, I would
0: you?
1: I would be, if, I was, if I'm the doctor, I would be a horrible, horrible patient. <laughs>
0: You would, you would be the headless chicken.
1: I would because that's my kids. Well,
0: and I think you know you cause you raise an important point. There is that 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 when you're that emotionally involved, it's very very difficult to be yeah. rational, isn't it? In a crisis, and that's why an
1: outsider's helpful. Someone like you, or someone like me, or someone that does what we do to be to provide outside perspective is really really valuable. Um, mm. And that's, that's really important about what we do is the companies that have the courage to kind of lay bare their failings um, and ask for outside help.
0: Yeah, I mean, courage and the humility too, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: Bill, it's been fantastic talking to you today. Thank you so much for your time and, and all of your wisdom and, and sharing so openly. Thank you very much.
1: Well, Jude, thank you very much for what you do and the sharing that, that, that you bring to people via the podcast and your work. So thank you um, for the time. And, and again, thank you for what you do.
0: Thank you. I love Bill's view that the first thing to do in a crisis or in uncertainty is to stop and assess what's happening and look for pattern recognition. It's so easy to make a knee jerk or emotional reaction in a crisis rather than assessing things rationally. I shall certainly be looking for pattern recognition next time I'm in uncertainty to see what sense I can make of it before making a decision. What are your patterns in a crisis? How do you stay grounded under pressure? That's it for this week. I was your host, Jude Jennison, and I hope you were as inspired as I was. Keep leading and come back soon for the next interview on Leading Through Uncertainty.